The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles with me and open up to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. This is uh, a chapter that presents us with one of the most fascinating and unexpected character arcs in all of Scripture. Uh, It takes us all the way from the highest position you can imagine, being the king, to the very lowest position that you could imagine, being a beast, and back up again to being king. Uh, From the mountain peak to the deepest valley and back to the mountain peak. And it's what I would argue is an Old Testament redemption story. This is a story about redemption. I'm convinced of that. What we find in chapter four is absolutely shocking. And if you were reading this for the first time in the sixth century BC, you would have done a a double take, a triple take, and maybe pulled out your glasses or whatever you used to, to squint to see if you were reading this right. Because what we read here seems so out of place. The the opening of Daniel chapter 4 is nothing less than shocking. And if I were to substitute David's name for Nebuchadnezzar's name, you might have easily thought that you were reading one of the Psalms. Imagine if you were reading this. David, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live on all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. You might have easily thought that I was reading one of the Psalms, but this is a testimony from the personal desk of Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan, Gentile, idol-worshiping king. Chapter 1 of Daniel, we find Nebuchadnezzar. He's one of the most feared enemies of Israel. In chapter 2, he's surrounded by witch doctors, magicians, sorcerers, conjurers, those who speak to the dead as his personal advisors. And he's, he's speaking out these death threats against anybody who can't interpret his dreams. And then in chapter 3, he's erecting an idol for himself, making great boast against the God of heaven. What God is there that could deliver you from my hands? So when you get to chapter 4... And the first thing that you read is, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. You might be thinking, what in the world is going on here? Like, like what, what just happened? Like, where's the switch? Where did the switch take place? You know, when, when Nebuchadnezzar stands up in the congregation and makes his way to the podium and stands behind the, the microphone and says, uh, praise the Lord, saints. <laughs> You know, I, my, my, my family, my dad's family was from North Carolina. I always heard it with like a G in it. It sounded like it had a G in it. Praise the Lord, saints. You know, praise the Lord, saints. I'm just glad to be in the land of the living one more time. And uh, I'm just here to tell you what God has done for me. I'm here to tell you about all the good things that the Lord has done for me, to declare his wonders, to declare what the Most High God has done. You know, we should all be wondering, what is this? Who, who led him on the mic? <laughs> like, did the pastor like approve of this testimony? Like, how did, how did he get up there? And more than that, 
What is he doing getting a full chapter in the Bible to write his testimony? This is like when Ananias is told in a vision to go to Saul of Tarsus, who we now know as the Apostle Paul. But when he was known as Saul of Tarsus, Ananias said, Lord, I have, I have heard from many about this man, how he has done much harm to your saints at Jerusalem. I mean, that's the same way the original audience would have been reading this chapter. Are you sure he should be getting a chapter in the Bible? I mean, I heard about this man and how much harm he's done to the people of Jerusalem. But what we find in this chapter is a a marvelous, glorious picture of redemption. And that should be encouraging to us to know how far God will go to extend his grace. Not even the the pigsty is beyond his reach or the, the field of oxen. But what we find also in this chapter is a terrifying picture that should really strike fear into all of us because this chapter also demonstrates how far God is willing to go to humble us. God is willing to go to extreme lengths to humble his people. He will, he will make you do a face plant in the grass for seven years in order to humble you. He'll do what it takes to strip us of what keeps us from him. And what keeps us from God? Pride. Pride. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2 says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor. Proverbs 15, 25, The Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 29, verse 23, A man's pride will bring him low. And then Proverbs 16, verse 5, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. He brings them down. He brings the proud down. And then 1 Peter 5 and verse 5 adds this terrifying thought. God is opposed to the proud. That that word for oppose is a military term. Antitasso. And it means to range in battle against, to set oneself up against. It's like you're running out on the battlefield to face off against God when your heart is lifted up in pride. Can you imagine squaring off with God? You know, over in this corner, in the black trunk, standing at about 5'11", or whatever your height is, is you. And over in the other corner, he's the undefeated, undisputed champion of the universe. We have God. (laughs) And then the bell rings. You already know how that fight's going to end. (laughs) You already know. And Nebuchadnezzar was thrown into the ring with God, to box with God until he figured out how short his arms were. And he becomes the example to all who follow that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. It is not worth it. But he had to have his face in the grass for seven years before he turned his eyes towards heaven. So let's take a look at our our text, Daniel chapter 4. This is a passage that begins and ends with praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. In verses 1 to 3, we have a declaration of praise. In verses 34 to 37, we have a declaration of praise. That's the the framework for this chapter. And to begin our time together, I just want to read those bookends in Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and then verses 34 to 37. Let's read the bookends of Daniel chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound 
It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Drop down to verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was established in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you. Father, we thank you for this text. And Father, we thank you for the way that this humbles us. Father, I pray that our eyes would be lifted up to heaven to see the one who is above us, that we would see how low we are before him, that all the nations are accounted as nothing. Help us to see your majesty as we look at this chapter. Now, Father, I pray that you would humble our hearts before you and that you would be the God who is gracious to lift us up. Now, Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 and verses 34 to 37 mirror one another. Nebuchadnezzar gives a personal word of praise to the one true God. God is identified as the most high God. And his kingdom is declared to be an everlasting kingdom and his dominion from generation to generation. And this is the first time that Nebuchadnezzar's actually admitted it. And there's a definite progression in Nebuchadnezzar's understanding of who the God of Israel is. In chapter one, he would have been introduced to the God who raises up his people. Daniel and his three friends were elevated above their peers when they refused to eat the king's meat. And even through Nebuchadnezzar, even though Nebuchadnezzar might not have understood why they were raised up before him, these four men were recognized as 10 times better than all the wise men in Babylon, and it was God who raised them up. So he was introduced to the God who raises up. In the second chapter of Daniel, he would have understood that it is God who reveals mysteries. None of the wise men in Babylon could reveal the king's dream or the interpretation, but Daniel responds In chapter 2 and verse 28, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He would have been introduced to the God who reveals mysteries. In chapter 3, he would have been faced with the God who rescues from the impossible, rescues from impossibilities. After Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the image, he heated up the furnace seven times hotter, tied them up, cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. But there was a God who delivered them, a God who rescued them. And he acknowledges there is No other God who is able to deliver in this way. There is a God who rescues from impossibilities. So he acknowledges that the Most High God raises up, he reveals, he rescues. But this is the first time that he's recognized that it is the Most High God who rules. And this would have been a significant turning point for Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember back in chapter 2, 
the thought that most plagued his mind was, what is going to happen to my kingdom? My kingdom. And in chapter 3, he's uh, attempting to unify his kingdom around the worship of this golden image of himself. He's worried about his kingdom. But here in chapter 4, he finally gives it up. It's it's not about my kingdom. (laughs) My, My kingdom's not going to last. It's about his kingdom. And his kingdom is everlasting. And his dominion rules from one generation to the next. This is a different Nebuchadnezzar. He's no longer making demands. He's no longer giving decrees. He's simply making a declaration, a public and universal declaration of the rule of Almighty God. A declaration of praise. That's our first point, a declaration of praise. Back in chapter 3 and verse 4, he instructed his herald to proclaim to all the nations and men of every language to bow down before his image. That was his great commission back in chapter 3. But now, before that same group of people, before all peoples, nations, men of every language, he now offers a public declaration of the greatness of the Most High God. This is an official announcement with a formal greeting. May your peace abound was a typical standard greeting. And he makes this declaration of the Most High God just as notorious as was his idolatry. The people who knew of his idolatry are the same people who need to know about the Most High God. It's been made official. And not only is this official, it's also personal. Look at verse 2. It says, It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. This, 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 is, this is personal. It seems good to me. I'm voluntarily doing this. I'm willingly doing this. You know, there's an old song, I get joy when I think about what he's done for me. He's here saying, this is what he's done for me. Think about, think about what the Lord has done for me. This is what the Lord has done to bring his blessing and benefit to me. And I'm making this known now before the entire world. This is a remarkable humility at the risk of embarrassing himself He shares what he considers to be the signs and wonders of God. And the purpose of a sign or a wonder is to point you beyond the sign or the wonder to the one who gave it. So so he says, these are the signs and wonders that the Lord has given me, but it it points me beyond that sign and wonder. What what does the sign and wonder point me to? Look at verse 3. It says, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion from one generation to generation. I mean, what, what, what does it point me to? It points me to the God who rules. That the signs and wonders points me back to the God who rules. That's the point. Every kingdom will come to an end. God's kingdom endures forever. And that's a truth that he could have picked up back in chapter 2. If you look back at chapter 2 and verse 44, we find that when his dream was revealed to him, this is what Daniel says in verse 4. It says, In those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. So he could have picked up that truth from Daniel chapter two, but the specific wording of this truth is a quotation from Psalm 145. Turn over to Psalm 145 real quick. Psalm 145. Psalm 145 is a a psalm of praise It's been observed that um, this psalm was recited three times every day in the Jewish liturgy, three times every day. Also happens to be the same number of times that Daniel would have prayed every day, according to Daniel 6 and verse 10. In other words, this is a psalm that was 
very familiar to the Jewish people. It's also an acrostic psalm where each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that would reinforce this idea that there's this, this full praise being given to God. Some commentators call it a, a psalm of praise from A to Z or an alphabet of glory. And it's also a covenantal psalm. It speaks about praise that continues from one generation to the next. And it serves as a reminder that God will ensure that his praise will continue from one generation to the next. It's, it's, it's a promise. This is going to happen. Look in verse 13 of uh, Psalm 145. It says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. That's where the language of Daniel chapter 4 is quoted. Where, where would Nebuchadnezzar pick up this specific language? Where, where do you think? He has Daniel in his court who's rehearsing the truth of Scripture with him. Where, where else would he get this language from? Daniel is speaking in biblical terms. And just as an encouragement, believer, wherever you are, you need to make sure that you're bringing the word of God with you, right? Wherever you are, you need to be bringing the word of God with you. Some people may never come to church to hear the word, but they should be hearing the word from you. And here we have Daniel in the court in a place where nobody else might have been able to get to, but Daniel was in there and he brought the word of God with him. So now when Nebuchadnezzar is quoting from the psalm, it's like we, we know where he would have gotten that from. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar gets these words. He's speaking biblical words of praise. Again, I think this is a different Nebuchadnezzar. But how did he get here? Let's take a look at the next section where Nebuchadnezzar describes this dream. Take a look at verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Don't, don't think for a minute that unbelievers can't enjoy periods of peace. Uh, it's been said that, that God's word should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And here you have Nebuchadnezzar who's in his house and he's totally at ease. He's flourishing. In Psalm 73, Asaph laments the prosperity of the wicked. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. That's actually a good thing in Psalm 73. Their body is fat. They're not troubled as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. And then down in verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They, they have increased in wealth. And here we have Nebuchadnezzar, and he seems to be always at ease. He, he's flourishing. He's in his palace. That word flourishing was uh, used of trees and plants that were leafy, luxuriant. It's a word that speaks of prosperity, stability. And the idea here is that everything is going well for the king. Most commentators place this period around 750, uh, 570 sorry, BC after Babylon's siege of, of Tyre was ended and Egypt was firmly under Babylon's control. Over in the, the book of Ezekiel in chapter 29 and verse 19, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will carry off her wealth, capture her spoil, and seize her plunder, and it will be wages for his army. So this is a time of rest, a time of ease, a time of luxury, a time of, of great wealth. And in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he might have said to his soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But as we also know from that passage in Luke chapter 12, just when the, the rich man thought that everything was well, 
God spoke to him and said, you fool, (laughs) you fool. Whatever security Nebuchadnezzar thought he had was a false sense of security. And the peace was disturbed by this alarming dream. And how much false security can vanish into thin air in a moment. False security. How many people have a false sense of security until they get that letter in the mail or that phone call that they didn't think that they would ever get or the doctor who walks back in and says, I'm I'm sorry, there's nothing else that, that I can do. Jeremiah 2 and verse 28 says, where are your gods that you have made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you. All the false sense of security that we feel uh, when, when the rubber meets the road, there, there is no security there <laughs> because my gods can't save me now. The, the one who can save me is the one that I've been distancing myself from all this time, the one that I've ignored all this time. But that's the only God that can help. That's why Psalm 73 verse 17 says, then I perceive their end. You know, they looked like they were having it easy, having a life of luxury, but, but then I looked at the end of life. That's, that's where the bill comes due, right? There's a disturbance of the peace. All is not well. Verse 5, back in Daniel chapter 4, he said, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Now, why Nebuchadnezzar brought in these same losers who could not make the interpretation known before is beyond me. But uh, back in chapter 2 and verse 9, he calls them all liars. He says, you've agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words. But now he calls in the same liars to come and interpret his dream again. What, what was going on? Why would he bring in the liars? Because sometimes we want to be lied to. Sometimes we want to be lied to. It could be that Nebuchadnezzar knew that this dream was going to be bad news. <laughs> and he preferred to hear comforting words rather than truthful words. Over in 1 Kings chapter 22, Ahab, the king of Israel, surrounded himself with false prophets because they told him what he wanted to hear. And when he wanted to go up against Ramoth Gilead in battle, they said, go up. They encouraged him, go up, king. The Lord will give it into your hand. And then Jehoshaphat asked, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And the king said in 1 Kings 22 and verse 8, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. (laughs) Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. But sometimes we don't want Micaiah to come in because we'd rather be lied to. Just just tell me something that feels good. Tell me something that's going to bring me some comfort. Tell me something that's going to make me feel better. You know, shouldn't I leave church feeling better? You know, sometimes you shouldn't leave church feeling better. Sometimes you should leave church feeling worse. Sometimes you should leave troubled because there's something that I've got to do differently now. But there are many times when we, we want to be lied to. That's what Paul talks about, that, you know, in the latter times, men will gather for themselves, teachers according to their desires, to tickle their ears. Just, just tell me something good. Let me, you know, tell me something good. 
I don't want to hear that stuff about sin and judgment and righteousness. Tell me something comforting. You know, I like to bring around the preachers that said, you know, I don't like to really talk about sin. You know, there's enough, enough negative talk going on. You know, I want to talk about things that are positive. You know, that's, that's what we want. We want positive speech, right? I was told about a recent wedding where the bride and groom specifically asked that the pastor not say anything about the design for marriage, the biblical design for marriage, because they didn't want to offend anybody in attendance. Sometimes we want to be lied to. Sometimes we don't want to hear the truth to feel better about where we are. But rather than making up a lying and deceitful word, they're honest about their inabilities. Here are the sorcerers, the witch doctors. They come in and said, we, we can't do it. We, <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you have a, you have a, a dream, but we can't, we can't interpret that for you, King. So rather than kind of beating around the bush and going to their dream books and making everything work, they said, no, we... We, we, we can't do it. We can't do it. But finally, Daniel came in, verse 8. It says, but finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him. Nebuchadnezzar, even at, at this time, he recognized that there was a difference between his God and the God of Daniel. He called the spirit in Daniel a spirit of the holy gods. But by the time he makes this declaration, he recognizes only one God. The Most High God. Remember, that's how he started, the, the, the Most High God. So he's referring to the true God, but during this time, he's kind of trying to figure it out still. And he at least recognizes that whoever your God is is holy. The gods of Mesopotamia wouldn't be known as holy gods, but he says, your God is holy. And the spirit that's within you is, is a holy spirit. In verse 9, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. And then he goes on to relay the dream to Daniel. Look at verse 10. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay in my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. You know, that sounds encouraging, but the rest of this isn't so much. Verse 13, I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But there's yet a final glimmer of hope, a faint glimmer. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass of the field. And then the imagery changes from it to him. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation. 
Inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, even if you didn't have a full understanding of the prophecy here, it's not hard to figure out that this does not sound good. <laughs> Chop down the tree. That, that does not sound good. This is why Nebuchadnezzar's alarmed. The, the head in the last dream was him. And now he's looking at this tree chopped down. He's like, is, is that me too? Is that me? And here we get into the interpretation of this revelation. This is what's found in the center of this outline. Point three, the interpretation of God's revelation. The dream set off these alarms in the king's mind. He's hoping that Daniel will be able to silence those alarms. But Daniel only turns up the sirens. You know, it's blaring now. Because what's about to happen to the king is much worse than what he could have imagined. And you know it's bad when a preacher is silent. <laughs> when, when a preacher is speechless, that's, that's a bad sign. <laughs> it says in verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. Daniel doesn't have anything to say. It's like, it's like it just took the words right out of his mouth. Like, what, what, else, what else can I say? He's speechless. Why is he speechless? Because he's grieved. He's grieved over this. And the king recognizes that the Daniel is distraught and he responds and he says, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. I mean, when the congregation has to encourage the preacher, something's, something's really wrong. Something's off. <laughs> Belteshazzar replied, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. If, if only I could say that this was about those who hate you. King, it's you. It is you. And in spite of all that Nebuchadnezzar has done, Daniel has a heart of compassion for this king. He, he doesn't want to see this king brought to judgment. And that's a, a significant observation to make because sometimes we can give words of judgment like that's what we're desiring. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't wish to see you judged. There, there should be a heart of compassion. Even as you're speaking the truth, you speak the truth in love. I, I don't want to see you judged. You know, sometimes we don't know what spirit we're of. Like James and John just want to call down fire. It's like, you don't, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. It was said that uh, George Whitfield never preached about hell without tears running down his face. We, we, we shouldn't be quick just to see people judge. Let them, let them get what's coming to them. That's, that's not how, how Daniel spoke. He says, oh, king, I wish this wasn't you. And we can divide this into three Sections here, the rise, the fall, and the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look at the rise of Nebuchadnezzar, verses 20 to 22. Look what he says. He says, The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all under which the beast of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king. This is like Nathan coming to to David and saying, you are, you are the man. You are the man. And in this first section, this, this dream paints a positive picture. 
The tree was a common picture of a kingdom in Hebrew literature. In Ezekiel 31, in verse 3, it says, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and very high, and its top was among the clouds. It was a picture of the kingdom. But like we pointed out in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was such a dominant figure in his kingdom that he represented the kingdom. He had all the control. There were no human boundaries beyond his own power. And in verse 10, he's described as the tree in the midst of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar literally understood his kingdom to be the center of all the earth. Inscriptions have been found in the buildings of Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar describes his kingdom as encompassing all the lands, the entire inhabited world, kings of far-off mountains. One inscription says that he made the city into a mountain fortress and that he gathered all men to its shadow for their well-being, prosperity, and blessing, and that his kingdom reached the ends of the earth, and he raised the city of Babylon to the summit. It's like, I'm at the top, top of the world. But the dream does not dispute his claim. You, you are on the top. Yeah, that, that is you, Nebuchadnezzar. He was the greatest of all the kings on the earth. The prophet Jeremiah actually predicted this years before it happened. Jeremiah 27 and verse 6, it says, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. The entire known world was under Babylon during this time. And in a figurative sense, his, his tree reached into the clouds. Everybody saw the empire of Babylon. Nobody's wondering, what, who, who is Babylon? Everybody knows. It was a beautiful kingdom. The foliage was beautiful. A German archaeologist uncovered much of the ruins of ancient Babylon in 1899 to 1917. And listen to what he found. Listen to this. The city was protected by a system of great double walls. The double walls were each 25 feet thick with 40 feet in between. A total of 260 towers, 160 feet apart. Through the center of the city for two-thirds of a mile extended a 70 feet wide stone paved procession street. Having walls decorated with enameled bricks featuring 120 lions and 575 dragons and bulls in alternate rows. At the end of the procession street was the famous Ishtar Gate, 35 feet high, decorated with 557 animals in bright colors against the blue glazed background. The original gate is actually at the Museum of the Ancient Near East in Berlin. You can actually see it today. The city was dominated by a seven-story high tower known as the Tower of Babylon. Nearly 60 million fired bricks were used to construct it, and most of the bricks recovered from Babylon, bear the inscription on the brick, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And on top of the tower stood the temple of Marduk containing a solid gold statue weighing 52,000 pounds, according to the Greek historian Herodotus. And at the north end of the city near the Ishtar Gate was Nebuchadnezzar's palace, his throne room, 171 by 56 feet, with triple gateways, richly decorated walls, and columns. And then, what was considered to be the greatest accomplishment of Nebuchadnezzar was the Hanging Gardens. One of Nebuchadnezzar's wives, the princess of Media, grew homesick for the mountains of her homeland. So in order to satisfy her, the king had mountains built on the roof of the royal palace complex. So he assembled these mounds of rocks and dirt, you know, to picture the mountains. And he built this on top of the roof of the palace, And these mountains were planted with trees and other kinds of plants. And a hydraulic machine system was devised to lift water from the Euphrates River to water these elevated gardens. And these hanging gardens became so famous 
that the Greeks named them as one of the seven wonders of the world. The foliage of Babylon was beautiful, and under the shade of Nebuchadnezzar, the nations found their provision and protection. Its fruit was abundant for all. The beasts of the field dwelt underneath the branches. The birds of the sky lodged. The greatness of Babylon. And it's not a sin for your nation to be great. God is the one who gave sovereignty to Babylon. It's not a a problem for your land to be glorious. That's not the problem. The problem is where do you think it comes from? (laughs) That's the problem. One author writes this, I may not have built Babylon, but there will be lesser achievements that will tempt me to pride. If we have been given intellectual ability, artistic or musical talents, business acumen or aptitude, one in a thousand directions, how easy it is to think that somehow we are the source. What is more, the same thing can be true of our attitude and spiritual capacity. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? This author goes on to say, We are not the source of our gifts. We did not merit them. They were not given to fuel our pride, but rather to be used for the benefit of others as well as ourselves. And if we do not use them in love, they will be of no value to us. How many times do you credit yourself for what you've done? It's pride. It's pride. Second Chronicles tells the story of Uzziah, who was a good and godly king. He built up the kingdom of Judah. Verse 15 of Second Chronicles 26, it says, His fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped, until he was strong. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. What did he do? He took the position of the priest and wanted to offer up incense. That's not your job, Uzziah. What are you doing in here? His heart became proud and he crossed the boundary, crossed the line. Nebuchadnezzar here was about to cross the line. Look at the next section of the dream. Look at verse 23. It says, in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree, destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with the band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass of the field. This, this tree that Nebuchadnezzar was, was going to come crashing down. He's no longer going to hold the position of power over the nation. He wouldn't even be half the man that he was. He was going to be a stump of the man that he was. His roots would still be in the ground, meaning that there would still be some life left, but there was a band of iron and bronze that would be around the stump at grass level to protect it from being totally annihilated. There's an inscription called the Wadi Brissa where Nebuchadnezzar recorded the march of his troops to conquer Lebanon, and he boasted about cutting down the trees. And now he was about to be the tree chopped down. And the lumberjacks are the angelic watchers, which is the name that Nebuchadnezzar used for the angels. They were going to come and knock this tree down. The word watcher was used to speak of diligence, readiness, to say that the angels are always ready to do the bidding of the Lord. In the book of Acts, it was an angel of the Lord who struck down Herod, and I'm sure he did that with some level of satisfaction. As Herod is taking on to himself the praise that I'm a God, I'm a God, he's not giving glory to God, and it was an angel who came down to strike him down until he was eaten by worms and died. That was an angel who did that. And here the command was to chop down Nebuchadnezzar's tree. Their mission was to seek and destroy. 
verse 17, it was the, the sentence of the decree of the angelic watchers, the decision by the holy ones. But the initial decree came from the Most High himself in Daniel chapter 4, verse 24. It says, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High. This is coming from God. The angels are just passing down the, the message. You know, they get it from God and they pass it down the chain of command. Chop down the tree. That's what God says. And then they hollow down, chop down the tree. <laughs> it's on, chop it down. Destroy it. And then the picture becomes really personal. Because now instead of talking about a tree, the, the dream does away with the metaphor and it just gets to him. There's no hiding behind the picture anymore. Look at verse 23 again. It says, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, king. It's, it's you. This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And this is just straightforward language at this point. The king of Babylon was about to become the king of beasts. Live like an animal. He'd live how they lived. He'd eat what they ate. He'd be given grass to eat like cattle, drenched with the dew of heaven. Back in 16, it says the angelic watchers, they said, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. And seven periods of time pass over him. The, the word for, for mind in the Aramaic is the word for heart, the inner self, the seat of moral reflection, the choice of will, the pattern of behavior dwells within the heart. And as much as people might want to erase the distinctions between men and animals, there's a wide chasm between man and animal, right? A Princeton bioethicist writes this, we can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God, singled out from all the other animal and alone possessing an immortal soul. He says we need to erase that distinction. Then he goes on to say this, and this, this just shows you how ridiculous it gets. He goes on to say this, the life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee, which shows you how corrupt this kind of thinking can get. It denies the image of God in man, and then it devalues the life of man. You know, it's amazing that so many people, you know, who want to save the animals also want to kill the babies. It's like, how, how do you get there? Because you don't, you don't see any difference. You don't recognize the image of God in man. The Bible calls animals unreasoning creatures of instinct, and that's how they're designed by God to be. For a beast to be beast-like is part of the blessing of their creation. But for a man to be beast-like is a curse. And Nebuchadnezzar would bear that curse for seven periods of time. What, what kind of periods of time are we talking about? That, that word for period is translated in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the word for years. That's how Josephus understood this term as well. It's the same word that's used over in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, where it speaks of time, times, and half a time, which is a reference to three and a half years. So what we're talking about is seven years, a seven-year period of time where Nebuchadnezzar would be driven into the field like an unreasoning animal, and it was a terrifying judgment. He'd completely lose it for seven years. That kind of curse fell upon Nebuchadnezzar. It's been characterized as a mental affliction known as boanthropy, where a person imagines himself to be an ox and behaves like it. Similar affliction is known as lycanthropy, where a person believes himself to be a wolf. This is where werewolves come from. 
A clinical case of bianthropy was observed in a British mental institution in 1946. The patient was in his, in his early 20s. He reportedly had been hospitalized for about five years. His symptoms were well developed on admission and diagnosis was immediate and conclusive. He was of average height and weight with a good physique and excellent bodily condition. His mental symptoms included pronounced antisocial tendencies. And because of this, he spent the entire day from dawn to dusk outdoors on the grounds of the institution. The writer was told the diet of this patient consisted exclusively of grass from the hospital lawns. He never ate institutional food with other inmates. His only drink was water. The writer was able to examine him cursorily, and the only physical abnormality noted consisted of a lengthening of the hair and a coarse, thickened condition of the fingernails. Without institutional care, the patient would have manifested precisely the identical physical conditions as those mentioned in Daniel chapter 4. And this was going to be how far the mightiest king would fall. But there was going to be a restoration. Look at chapter 4 and verse 26. It says, And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. There's a promise of restoration. The stump is going to be left in the ground. The roots are still there. There, There's an assurance of life after he recognizes that heaven rules. But my friends, that's not a promise that's guaranteed for everybody. There are many people who are chopped down who never come back. You understand that, right? There are many people who are chopped down that never see a restoration. Pontius Pilate, who oversaw the crucifixion of Christ, according to history in 36 AD, he was banished to Gaul, and there he lost his mind and committed suicide. Judas was driven insane after the crucifixion of Jesus And in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. Herod, we already read about him in Acts chapter 12, where he was eaten by worms and died. Everybody does not come back. But Stumpy here was promised a return and a restoration. Your stump's going to be left there. there. There is something afterwards. But here we have the gracious offer of Daniel. King, you can bypass all of this. You you don't have to go down this path. There's a detour here. There's an exit. King, I, I don't wish this for you. You ever hear, you know, people give their testimony. It's like, oh man, they have a powerful testimony. I wish I had a powerful testimony like that. I'm, I'm happy for some of the boring testimonies. <laughs> You know, the testimonies that, like, I never had to be down in the gutter and, you know, you know, you know, drugged out or whatever else and, you know, on the streets for most of my life. And then finally, finally, you know, I came to the Lord. It's like, oh, man, that was a powerful testimony. I like the boring testimonies. I, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents taught me the Bible. And uh, I don't, I'm not sure where it, it happened, but, like, I, I just came to life. And, and now I know I'm, I'm living and before I was dead. Praise God for a testimony like that. I don't don't have to say I spent seven years like a beast with my nose in the grass. And then finally I lifted up my eyes. Why do you have to go there? And this is what Daniel's saying. King, you don't have to do this. There's a way out of this, king. Look what he says in verse 27. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now. Break away now. It's a word that means to tear off, 
Tear off your sins. Tear away from it. By doing righteousness and from your iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. King, you don't have to do this. We know that the Ninevites averted the judgment of God when they what? They repented, dust cloth, ashes, right? And dust and ashes. They didn't, they didn't receive the judgment that was promised. Because they, they turned away, they repented. King, that could be you. We know that, that we, when we come to Jesus Christ, like we're uh, the soul that sins shall surely die, right? But when we come to Jesus Christ, what happens? We're given life. We're given eternal life. You don't have to experience the death that's promised to you, right? You can be a different person. You can repent. You can turn away. Over in the book of, of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 28, it speaks about the, the kind of, of hope that, that we have. Proverbs 28, look at verse 13. It says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find what? Compassion. There's compassion. There's an offer of compassion. uh, Isaiah 55, Isaiah 55, verses six and seven. Listen what it says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. Why won't you receive the compassion that's being offered? Turn to our God, because he will abundantly pardon. Why why wouldn't you receive the forgiveness of sins? Why wouldn't you receive the compassion that the Lord is offering? And the idea of doing mercy and and doing righteousness and showing mercy, it's not somehow to atone for your sins, but, but to demonstrate a changed life, the demonstration of repentance. In Matthew 19, there's a similar statement where uh, Jesus tells the, uh, a, a rich young ruler, you know, if you want to be complete, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Is he saying that you can be forgiven because you give away your possessions? No. He's saying demonstrate that your repentance is real. In a similar way, Zacchaeus, the tax, collectors, the tax collector in Luke 19, behold, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Why? Because he got saved by because he, he gave away his stuff? No, it demonstrated there was a change of life. And Daniel is pressing Nebuchadnezzar for the fruit of repentance. Nebuchadnezzar, if you change, this doesn't have to happen to you. Abandon this pursuit of building your own kingdom. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Turn away from your sins, seek the mercy of the Almighty. Who knows what the Almighty might do? He might have compassion on you, Nebuchadnezzar. You don't have to go here. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, you you hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder and you have no interest in any mediator? And nothing to lay hold of to yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Nebuchadnezzar, do you realize it's only the mercy of God that's keeping you from falling into the flames? And the same is true for anybody here who has not repented. And the offer that we're making here is, why wouldn't you receive the compassion of the Lord? Why would you die in your sins? The, the offer of doom is there, but also the offer of grace. Like the threat of doom is there, but the offer of grace is always there. 
How many times have you ignored God's word? How many times have you turned away from his warnings? How many times have you rejected his son? What reason could you give God to spare you for another moment? Or as Romans 2 says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? You take it lightly? Turn to Christ before it's too late. There's no promise of restoration for you without it. Heed the warnings while there's time. And Nebuchadnezzar serves as a warning for all of us. And we'll have to see what happened to Nebuchadnezzar next time. But I want to leave you with, with this. There's, a, there's an offer of, of mercy and compassion to anyone who would turn now. Would, would you turn to Jesus Christ? Would, would, you, would you submit yourself to Jesus Christ? Would you turn away from your sins and embrace Jesus Christ, the only hope of salvation? You don't have to go down this path. And if you are down this path, you have no idea if the Lord will ever restore you. That's frightening. That's terrifying. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and uh, Father, we're so grateful for your word. Now, Father, we're grateful for the comfort that it brings. We're also thankful for the, the fear that it brings. Even in Psalm 19, the, the word of God is called the fear of the Lord. Now, Father, I pray that you would comfort the afflicted and that you would afflict the comfortable. Now, Father, if there are any persons here who are comfortable in their sin, Father, I pray that you would afflict them in their sins and that you would drive them to the cross of Jesus Christ, the only place where mercy can be found. Jesus Christ became the curse for us. He satisfied the wrath of God in our place so that all who turn to him can have the gift of eternal life. Now, Father, we don't have to experience the, the judgment that sin brings, the destruction that pride brings. We don't have to face that. <laughs> Father, there's a way out. And Father, I pray that we would take that way out and that we would receive from you forgiveness and compassion, your mercy, your grace, which are abundant. Father, I pray that uh, you would speak to the people even now that you would trouble their hearts, Lord, and that you would drive them to your Son. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.